So I'm going to read from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2. I'll try and read clearly so that you can follow along and understand what uh, God's Word says to us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The big section that we've been dealing with has to do with walking in the light, walking in fellowship with God. Our particular portion... Sorry. Our particular portion is this section that we have just read, and the concept that we want to uh, pursue and look at is that God is light, therefore it's our responsibility to walk in light. Now here's the outline that will follow, and it should be in your notes for the, uh, in the bulletin. Perhaps you can follow along and perhaps even jot down a few of the ideas so that we uh, can have some continuity and some uh, things to remember over the next several weeks. Fellowship. Interesting word, isn't it? Dr. Frank last week defined it for us and spent some time developing that concept. And I wanted to just review a little bit what fellowship is all about. A fellowship can be a group of people discussing various issues. A group of people can be interacting physically and uh, emotionally. A fellowship can be a community of believers who gather together. Might even be just a group of folks who are enjoy being together or could even... Oh, I'm sorry. Fellowship of the Rings. That probably doesn't uh, fit right now. Anyway, fellowship fellowship. It's the idea of communing, of gathering together. And what we've done this morning is been called here by God to fellowship with one another. But there's an important aspect that we need to realize that the most important fellowship is to have fellowship with God. That is to be able to interact with him, to communicate with him, to uh, experience 
His care and love and provision in our lives. And if we don't have that, our lives really are, are um, lacking in what God intended, us, uh, intended for us when he created us. Humans need fellowship. Interesting studies have been done just recently, um, especially about young children using technology. And uh, they're finding, we all knew this, but they're finding that it really doesn't help them. You say, well, now, wait a minute. I watched yesterday as uh, my second youngest grandchild, Milo, took his mom's phone and began pushing buttons. And lo and behold, this little game came up, and then he played the little game. Milo doesn't even talk. Milo can't even figure out how to say mommy. <laughs> and yet he's using this phone to play a game. Far better for Milo to be able to talk to his mother. Far better for his brain as it develops to have interaction with another human being. One person said, we think our kids are such geniuses when they can manipulate these, uh, these um, electronic devices and play games and, and do all kinds of things. He said, you can train a monkey to push a button. And, oh, okay. No, what's needed is fellowship. There needs to be communication. There needs to be touch. There needs to be interaction in order for that child to develop. Very, very important. Every one of us, not just children, every one of us need fellowship. There's a few rare individuals that are kind of the hermit type that really don't appreciate having interaction with other human beings. But it's, the, it's the, the minority group. We need fellowship. And without fellowship with our creator and our sustainer, we're really just a shell of what he intended us to be, of how we were designed. So Paul is going, or Paul, John is going to communicate with us uh, how we can develop in this area of fellowship. And he says, I have a message for you. This is the message. And he declares it in no uncertain terms. This is the message. God is light. Now notice he didn't say God has light or God created light. No, he is uncreated light. Very important. God is light. Light has uh, some interesting connotations, doesn't it? In fact, light symbolizes many things. Especially in Scripture, light symbolizes God's holiness, His purity, His virtue, His morality. Light symbolizes His truth, His character, and His glory. In other words, he's all about light. He's all about light. The psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with the garments, stretching out the heavens like a tent. 
He is absolutely covered with light. Paul writes to his friend Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, talking about Jesus. He says he's the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Now that concept of unapproachable light has some real problems with it. I have not observed unapproachable light, but I have experienced unapproachable heat. Maybe you have as well. I remember one time I was uh, clearing out the grove for the farmer uh, that we were renting from and uh, pulled out all this dead wood and had a huge pile. It was probably about 15 feet high and about 30 feet wide. It was just a huge pile of of uh, lumber and we poured some fuel on it and lit it and that thing just took off and it was so intense that even 30 or 40 feet away you could feel the heat. At the end of of the burn I I went forward and I was going to pick up the pieces that were around the edge to kind of throw them in and make sure they all burned. You've all done it. You know what I'm talking about. And there was still so much heat that it felt like my skin was going to melt and I had to back away. I had no choice. It was unapproachable heat. Now imagine, if you will, another kind of energy. Unapproachable light. And what will that do to us? We, as we come close, we're forced to retreat. We're forced to stay away because we cannot approach it. Creates a question, doesn't it? How can we have fellowship with someone who is unapproachable. How can I approach and communicate someone who's unapproachable, someone who is so pure, so holy, that, that I'm forced to stay a distance from that person? And, and there's, a, there's a tremendous concern here. Now, you're going to have to wait for the answer, but it is here in our text. And we will get to it when we get to chapter 2. So let's continue on. John continues to talk about this God who is light, this God who is purity and holiness and morality and truth and, and glory. And he says, in this one there is no darkness. No, not in any way is, a, is probably a better translation, I'm told. Not a bit of darkness. Or as... Uh, President Obama would say, not a smidgen of darkness. Darkness symbolizes things that are evil, wickedness, deception, and things that ultimately lead to death. John wants it abundantly clear that in our God there is no darkness at all. So what's John getting at? His point is this. Those who would walk in fellowship with God cannot walk in darkness. The two absolutely are, are opposed to one another. For if there's a dark room and light is introduced, there's no longer darkness. They cannot coexist. And John wants us to know that there's a responsibility that we have to walk in fellowship with God 
And in order to do so, we must walk in the light. And so now if you'll go to our outline, he says there's, there's several things that I want you to be aware of. And he uses a if we say statement for each one of those. So let's take a look at those. You'll see them in your outline. The first one, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. Understand this. He's talking about someone who practices sin as a way of life. Someone who just doesn't mind being separated from God. The contrary point is, if we walk in the light as He, the Lord Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the one another there primarily means fellowship with God. It also includes fellowship with each other like we are having this morning. But the primary fellowship that's on John's mind is fellowship with God. If you walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now here's a quote that I'd like you to try and absorb. True believers consistently and continuously order their lives in the light they have received from God. Their thoughts and conduct revolve around God's light, which others see in them, and they have true, unbroken fellowship with God. Can you process that? I'll give you a few more minutes to read it again. There's something interesting about these people who have fellowship with God. And, and Mr. Levy calls them true believers. Key word. Remember we sang that song? I believe. I believe. Very important concept. There's two results. The first result of a person who walks in the light is that we have fellowship with God. The deepest need of our lives is met in walking in the light because we have fellowship with God. The second thing, and this is so beautiful, and this is from verse 7, if you will, of chapter, uh, chapter 1. He says, The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, that is God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Some commentaries suggest that it's a continual cleansing. Now here's the first glimpse that we have into that question of unapproachable light. Here really is the anchor for our souls. Somehow, there's a connection between walking in the light and this idea of the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us from all sin. So hold on to that thought. It's very important. And I hope we'll get to it and be able to understand it before we're done. He says again, if we say, and here is another group, and really you'll notice that there's one group that says one thing and then followed by another group that says something else. Got that? One group says, I have fellowship with God, but I walk in darkness. 
Another group says, we walk in the light and depend on the cleansing power of the blood of Christ to bring us into fellowship with God. Here we have a second statement. If we say, if we say we have no sin. This is a reference, whoops, I'm sorry. This is a reference to the sin nature. If we say that there's no uh, character of sin in my person or in my life is what they're trying to get at. Now, who would say such a thing? Well, in John's day, there was a group of people, a cult called the Gnostics, who said, we're really not sinners. Uh, we, we have a body that sins, but the real us doesn't sin. We just live in fellowship with God. Our bodies can do whatever they want, but we have a relationship with God through our spirit. And John is writing to contradict that. John is, is saying in no uncertain terms, uh, no, 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 no. If we say we have no sin, there's a problem. How about in our day? Is there, is there any group that says that we have no sin nature? Well, the truth is the vast majority of people, at least in the Western world, hold this view. Most people hold the understanding that we have no sin, that we don't have this sin nature. Uh, that's not what the position of the early church was. But um, a man named John Locke and others came along. He was, lived from 1632 to 1704, for those of you that want a little historical update. And it was his idea that when a child was born, it wasn't born in sin. It wasn't born with a sin nature. Rather, this child was born as a blank slate and that they had to be written upon. There had to be information put into them. And how we put the information in determined what kind of a life these people would live. Another man came along a few years later, influenced by John Locke, a man named Voltaire, a Frenchman, and he said that not just are we blank slates, but we are born with innate goodness, that is, goodness from within. We are born good, and that we actually have to learn to be sinful. And it's interesting that even uh, several hundred years later, this view is still very common among most of the people in the Western world, that a little child is this perfect individual, and if something goes wrong in their life, then they'll become sinners. Both Locke and Voltaire have created a view that is contrary to what the Word of God says. And so we have to be very careful not to fall into the trap of believing what the, the rest of our uh, colleagues and friends in the world believe, but we have to be careful to believe the truth of God's Word. St. Paul writes, Ephesians 2, 3, we are by nature, by nature, children of wrath. Now when did that happen? 
It happened way, way back at the beginning of humanity. When Adam and Eve rejected the counsel and, and fellowship with God and sinned against that God. And from that moment on, every person born into this world is tainted by sin. Not just tainted, but absolutely dominated by sin. We look at the world today and we see horrendous things happen. And people scratch their head and they can't understand how these terrible things are taking place. What we don't realize is that the Bible teaches that man's heart is desperately wicked. That the evil in our hearts, in our lives, is so great that we can't even comprehend how evil it is. That's who we are. That's what the Bible says. That's what the, the Bible teaches us. The psalmist says that we are born in sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. And so, as we read 1 John verse 8, if we say we have no sin, John's cry to us this morning is, please, please don't go there. Please don't say we have no sin. We're not those people with a sin nature. We're, we're innately good. We have inherent goodness in us. No, don't say that. You're deceiving yourself, he says, and the truth is not in you. Instead, verse 9, he says, recognize that God desires to forgive our sin. He desires to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <coughs> he wants us to be those who not only say, how do I get this right? He doesn't want us to be those who say, I have no sin. He wants us to be those who say, I have sin. And I confess my sin. That is, I agree with God. I'm going to have the same mind as God does on this issue. And it means I'm going to agree that I can't save myself. And so that eliminates my ability to work. Some people say, well, if I'm really a fine person or if I really give a lot to the church or if I do kind things. But to agree with God is to understand that I cannot save myself. It's to agree with God that I need His fellowship, but because He is holy and pure and cannot be tainted by darkness, then I need to understand that darkness cannot approach light, unapproachable light. Well, I want to be in fellowship with God. There's a real dilemma here. A dilemma is considered to be a problem with only bad solutions. And, and that is a real problem. Now, it's God's problem, you see, because God desires fellowship with us maybe more than we desire a, fel a fellowship with Him. What is the dilemma? Either God remains in unapproachable light, that is, He continues to hold sin at a distance, and holds sinners at a distance, or he has to compromise his holiness. 
He has to become tainted. He has to become dirty. What is he to do? If God loses even an ounce of his holiness, he's no longer the God of the Bible. What a, what a dilemma. And so we're back with that huge question. How can we have fellowship with someone who is unapproachable? How can God maintain his holy position and still forgive my sin? Hang on. Hang on. The answer is just around the corner. But we're going to have to wait till we get nearer the end of our section today. First, let's go to verse 10. This would be the third aspect of the uh, questions that, that uh, John seems to be asking. If we say that we have not sinned, we do something even more gross. We make him a liar. Oh, let's be careful. And his word is not in us. Make him a liar? Make a liar out of God? Oh, it can never be. Not the one who is truth. The one whose word is truth. He cannot be a liar. And so please, don't be one who says, we have not sinned. None of us are exempt. I include myself in this. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. All of us are sinners. God speaks truth and only truth. But hold on. Here's the good news. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he said, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, <clears throat> but also for the sins of the whole world. Two huge words in there, advocate and propitiation. Let's attempt to at least answer what they mean. But first, let's ask the question. How can we have fellowship with someone who's unapproachable? The first part of the answer is that we have an advocate. That is someone who's on our side. We have someone who can help us. We have someone who will speak up on our behalf. And according to the author of uh, of 1 John, the portion that we're just reading, he says his name is Jesus Christ the righteous. Oh, exciting. Starting to fit together. Here we have Jesus Christ the righteous. Who is? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Well, we know him as the Son of God. The Bible introduces us to the Son of God who willingly became a human being and we celebrate his birth at Christmas and we celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection at Easter. That God, man, is the Messiah the Christ. It's God's own Son. And He was pierced because of our sins. His hands and His feet were pierced for our sins as He was nailed to that cross. His side was pierced and the blood 
from his body ran out as he passed away. And his shed blood was the sacrifice that God needed in order to forgive sin. The Lord Jesus paid the price for sin by offering himself, by shedding his own blood, by being pierced for our sins. Not just my sins. What a thrill. Yours as well. And every little child that comes into this world desperately needing righteousness and truth and fellowship with God can have their sins forgiven because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sins. John wrote another letter, a gospel. You're familiar probably with it, the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 3, verse 16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He goes on to say, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you hear it? Do you see it? It takes belief. The Lord Jesus is the answer. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the propitiation for our sins. That advocate, that one who decided to come and help us, is the one who propitiates our sin. Now, that's a tough word. It means that he is the payment that satisfies God. How can a righteous, unapproachable, holy God be satisfied to be in the presence of those who have sin in their lives? And we understand that it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself who paid for my sin. God is satisfied. When Christ died and shed his blood, it was as though I were being offered as a sacrifice myself, as I were giving, though I were giving my own life. You say, that seems strange. Yes, it does seem a little strange. But it's what the Bible teaches, and it's what I need to believe. He can forgive me and still be holy because Jesus Christ was the satisfying payment when he shed his blood. Folks, some of you have heard this message so many times, it becomes almost, almost plain, almost boring. It must never be that. In a few minutes, we'll have opportunity to reflect on this person, this wonderful Savior, our advocate, our propitiation, Jesus Christ. And we will, as a, in a sense, look on the one who was pierced for our sins. And as he shed his blood, it paid the price that God demanded in order for people to be holy. How can it be mine? John 3.16 again. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Some words that are common to Christianity. The word faith. 
the word believe, the word trust. We've used all of them this morning. I need to be made pure, and I can only be made pure and holy by believing that Jesus Christ shed His blood to pay for all my sin. And if my sins are paid for, then God can accept me. God can view me as righteous. God can see me just the same way He sees Himself and He sees His Son, the Lord Jesus. And you can have eternal life by believing that Christ died for your sins. Will you trust Him today? He's already paid for your sin. All you must do is accept His payment. Accept it as your own. Believe that His blood was shed to pay for your sin. And I urge you, do it now. Let's pray together. And perhaps you would join me in in prayer. Perhaps you would even, at this moment, tell God, that you accept the payment of His Son as your very own. Father, these are such solemn things. We have, by nature, separation from You. And yet it's Your loving heart to draw us close to Yourself. But because You're unapproachable, because of Your holiness and, and because of our sin, that there's this huge barrier between us. We thank you that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, and that he crashed down that barrier, that he destroyed the problem that was between you and us by shedding his own blood. And God, I pray this morning that you would touch all of our hearts as we look on him who's been pierced and that we would respond in faith, in belief, in trust, and say, I put my trust in the finished work of Jesus. I put my trust in His shed blood. Allow it to be so, we pray, Father, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.